regardless of even the blessings and the benefits and the good things that you have in life, Jesus Christ changes you at your core. Those of you who are familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Unlike anything he was before, you become a spiritual son of God. And it goes on and it says, old things are passed away. Hallelujah for that. And for some of us, maybe more than for others of you, I don't know, but for sure in my life, I was so glad to say goodbye to old things. And all things are become new. Praise the Lord for that. That's an awesome experience. I don't know if you can still remember. Some of us have been saved so many years. Sometimes it's hard to go back and remember, but certainly if it was that cataclysmic in your life, like it was in mine anyway, you can remember, I can remember how I felt after I received Christ as my Savior. I can remember truly feeling the weight lifted off of me. I remember specifically knowing, look, it's, I have a whole new outlook on life. I have a fresh, clean slate, a new start. That was just incredible. That's exactly what it's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. All things are become new. I mean, the sun was a little brighter that day and the birds were singing a little louder. You know, it was that kind of a deal. And so, that being the case, it doesn't take long to figure out that yet still, just because you receive Christ as your Savior, your problems don't just magically go away. If you owed people money, you still owe them money. If you have a challenging boss at work, he's still going to be there tomorrow. If you have struggles in relationships, they're probably still going to be there. I mean, there's still problems, but now he gives you a power and a strength to be able to handle them. You're no longer alone in this fight because Jesus is always going to be there with you to help you out. And we know that all things work together for good for Christian people. Because Christ is always with you to help you grow through even the challenges and the difficulties that continue after you trust him for salvation. You continue to trust him as you walk with him. I mean, think about it. If Jesus Christ's death was powerful enough to save your sin-stained, wretched, hell-bound self and your soul, Think how much more powerful his resurrected life is to work in you mightily today. You see, that's the message of Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So man, if Christ's dying did such life-changing effect in our lives his resurrected life and the power to bring life from dead things now working in us man we should never ever be the same that's the power of his resurrection that's what it is bringing life to things that previously had no life that's what a resurrection is That's literally what happened to you the day you trusted Christ as your Savior. Let me remind you of in Ephesians chapter 2 
and verse number one. And you hath he quickened, old English for made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's why the Bible refers to Jesus Christ himself says, you must be born again. It's a new life where life previously did not exist. Spiritually, each and every one of us, every man, woman, boy, and girl, every one of us are born physically alive at the time of our physical birth, but spiritually dead, spiritually dead. And that spirit that was dead in trespasses and sins is quickened when we trust Christ as our Savior. He brings life out of something that's dead. That's powerful. And that's the very power that's available to you today as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this subject, not from Philippians 3, but if you'll turn with me back to Ephesians chapter number 1, and we're going to look at the last several verses of Ephesians chapter 1 as our primary text as we address this subject of resurrection power. I'm going to start in verse 15 and go all the way down to verse 23, mainly because that's all one sentence. Have you ever noticed the Bible has some long sentences? And sometimes we want to preach just a few verses, but I don't think it's fair, even grammatically. It's just not honest to take a phrase if you don't take it in the context. And so the whole context is the whole sentence, and the sentence starts in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you, in my prayers. And so Paul is going to be praying for these believers. The content of his prayer is really the, the text that we want to study, starting in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put on all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray together and we'll break this thing down. Heavenly Father, we love you. We are so very grateful for your death, your burial, your resurrection. Because of that, our dead spiritual life now has come alive. And Lord, for anyone who might be here who is not sure that that's happened in their life, help them to understand today that that can happen today if they'll just surrender their hearts and confess their sin and ask you to save them, just as all of us who have done that understand. And Lord, for the, those of us who know that already in salvation, that we would really and truly learn how to experience the power, the life-giving power of the resurrection in our life every day as we walk with you. That's our desire, like the Apostle Paul, that we would know you and the power of your resurrection. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what does this power of the resurrection really mean to me? Hopefully that's the question you're considering. It's what you should consider when you read through the scriptures. And the first point we're going to see is a proven presence 
a proven presence in your life. And starting in verse 17, where Paul prays, right, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So it makes the connection of what we talked about, that we might know him, right? Paul is speaking to saved people. And what he's doing is he is explaining the benefits of salvation with respect to eternity, but not just with respect to eternity, because really what he's saying is, and this is in your notes, that God will show himself strong in your life right after your salvation so that you would be convinced of who he really is and not doubt. That happens, you know. And if that has happened to you, listen, join the club. It happens to everybody. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Somebody presents the gospel to you. You're sitting in a church and you hear a message. You're reading the Bible and you see the truth. Whatever happens, that revelation becomes very real to you and you realize, man, I need to take care of this. So you humbly and sincerely ask God to forgive you. You say amen. You open your eyes and you think, I wonder if that worked. (laughs) I mean, you doubt, you wonder, you consider those things and you go through your life and maybe you have a very emotional experience and maybe you don't and not everybody does and and sometimes you wonder about those things and the Lord is certainly fully aware of those things because what happens in the spirit does not always manifest itself in some grand physical way because it's not physical, it's spiritual. And that's a really important thing. So, How does that exactly happen? How is it that the Lord will show himself strong in our lives very soon after the moment of salvation so that we will be convinced, so that we will not doubt? Well, let's take a look at that. Listen, if you look and study, and I encourage you to do this. I mean, jot down some notes, go home and do this. This is a really good study. The earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he conducted his ministry with his disciples at the beginning of his earthly ministry, what you will find is a pattern. And I'm going to walk you through the pattern, just talking us through several chapters in the beginning of the book of Matthew to help you get a feel for this. You go home and check it out, and you'll see that this is all true. Because shortly after the disciples begin to surrender and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, early in his ministry is the time that Jesus Christ has this multiplied number frequently cranking out physical miracles of healing, demon possession, casting them out, raising people from the dead, healing all manner of sickness and disease, all of these multiplied miraculous supernatural acts that Jesus Christ did, most all of them occurred very early in his ministry, not later in his ministry. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. And there's a reason why, and there may be a lot of reasons why, but for sure one of the reasons why, as it concerns his disciples, is that as he said, hey, come follow me, and they said, okay, we're going to follow you, and Peter and Andrew and James and John and all, they leave their nets and they begin to follow Jesus, but you know they had to be, I mean, look, man, human nature, you got to know that they're wondering, okay, what's this going to look like? (laughs) And Jesus, bam, he starts healing people and and man, deaf people can hear and blind people can see and lame people can walk and holy cow, all these wonderful things are happening and these fishermen and these people that are following him are now thinking, wow, this is the Messiah. 
This is the promised one that was prophesied to come. He is the man. <laughs> He's gonna, he is going to do what he said. And that's what we see. So if you were reading Matthew 3, you would see where Jesus shows up. John the Baptist is baptizing in Jordan. And Jesus shows up and John baptizes Jesus. And the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Yeah, I should do this. This is my beloved son. And who I am well... You know, that, that whole dramatic thing had to have been cool and the dove comes down and immediately you think, wow, what a glorious moment. Immediately chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days fasting, tempted by the devil. He gets through the temptation, no sin, of course. And immediately after that is when he begins his earthly ministry, his public ministry at age 30. That's when he began. And so when he does that in chapter number four, before that chapter is over, that's when he comes across Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he starts to call these guys, and he says, follow me, and they do. And then you get to chapters five, six, and seven, and we refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount. And so as he's got his disciples around him, he's teaching his disciples with some pretty intense teaching about what the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish is going to look like. And he comes out of those chapters in chapter 7, and he starts in chapter number 8. And Matthew chapter 8, from the very beginning to the very end, is just one miracle after another, just one miracle after another. And so I made a list. Cleanses a leper. Heals a centurion's son. Heals Peter's mother-in-law. Casts out devils of many different people healed many more people, calms the storm on the sea, cast devils out of two men and they run into the herd of swine. That's just chapter number eight. So immediately upon making their decision to follow this man, Jesus, they're introduced to an intense time of learning truth that is new and experiencing life that is new, both of which are supernatural. And you know what? If you continue to study the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus and later on into the second and third year of his travels and the things that he did, you find far fewer physical miracles and further in between. Why is that? Well, again, there can be many reasons, but one reason concerning the life of the disciples following him would certainly be, as the disciples have now developed an experience of walking with Christ, they're already convinced of who he is. They're sold out. They're bought in. They're, they're in this thing. They don't need miracles anymore. They just follow Christ because of who he is. We call that walking by faith. They just believe his word. And you know what? That's exactly the same thing that God will do in your life as well. It's exactly the same thing he'll do in your life as well. Because when you trust Christ as your Savior, listen, if there's no other reason for you to get involved in our discipleship program, if you have been trained in discipleship and have not been discipling others, man, you're missing out because one of the greatest things is you take a young believer 
and you walk them through the first stages of their life in Christ, that's the most exciting time to be around those guys because, yeah, they show up, you know, from their old life, maybe a little dirty, maybe they got a little nicks and bangs on them, so what? But man, God is working in mighty ways and the teaching is new and the experiences are new and it's all very supernatural and prayers are getting answered and things are happening. And it's a time of great rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus Christ is proving himself strong to that young disciple. He's showing forth his power so that the disciple realizes, wow, I really, I mean, this really is the Lord. He is doing things that only the Lord could possibly do. He's changing me. That's how he operates. And for everybody, how it plays out for you is going to be different. But certainly he changes your life. He changes your speech pattern. He changes your attitudes. He begins to supply needs whether they be financial or whatever related. He helps you out of trouble. Maybe you've been in trouble and he miraculously gets you out. Specific prayers are answered. They may be huge prayers. They may be very simple prayers, but they're very, you ask and it is given. And you're like, man, this is kind of cool. I'm going to ask more. Yes, exactly. That's the whole point. And later on in your life, If you've been saved a long time, you might find that it doesn't really work that way anymore. Why? Did Jesus change? No, because now you're more mature. You've you've already bought in. You know who he is. Just trust him at his word. That's all you need. That's one of the problems with the charismatic movement is the constant emphasis on signs and wonders and the miraculous Jesus throws out the signs and the wonders, the miraculous for those who are weak in their faith to build their faith stronger. But when your faith is strong, there's no more need for a sign. And so somebody who's always looking for signs is somebody who's demonstrating that their faith still is pretty weak. But God will do this in your life. Let me just tell you, he did it in mine. And, and again, mine is no example for anybody's, but it's just mine and I'm so excited about what he's done in my life. Listen, he changed my attitude. There's no question about it. He changed, listen, he changed my vocabulary. I promise you. He, he opened my, I, I, honest, I can't express to you how this happened. He opened my otherwise deaf ears to hear what I was listening to musically that I never seemed to hear I used to be able to sing the lyrics to these songs and for some reason never got to me what exactly I was singing and some of that stuff was so devil exalting I'm embarrassed to tell you and so man that was miraculous I said whoa what is that record you know (laughs) through it I mean it was what am I doing with this he began to change me he took away the desire that I had in my evil, sinful past for drugs and alcohol. I moved to a new city when I met Christ. Nobody knew me. That means, and I got saved as soon as I moved there. That means that nobody knew my secret bad habits from my old city. 600 miles away, by the way, not like next door city. He took that away because I just didn't, I didn't care about it anymore. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do that anymore. 
I had dropped out of school for a few years. I had enrolled back into college after dropping out. Uh, you know, I wasn't a bad student, but, you know, you drop out for a couple of years while you're smoking dope every day. You're not going to be like the greatest student first day back into class, but, man, I, man, I, I got like straight A's. Now, that's not about me, I promise you. It's, man, the Lord just helped me. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing the things that he did for me. I mean, these are miracles in my life that he did. I mean, so I'm living in this college town, and I'm a part of this church, and this church, I mean, this family in the church just kind of took me in and adopted me like, oh, well, while you're in town here, you know, just, you can just be like our son. Here's a key to the house. Come in, kick your feet up on the, I mean, just help yourself to the fridge. Just, I mean, man, as a college student, that's awesome. So, I mean, wow, who, you don't even know, I could rip you off. They didn't, I mean, they were so nice. I mean, these were miraculous things God was doing in my life. I, I was a new man. I felt so good. I had a new perspective. Things started to make sense. I had a purpose for living. Things that I never even knew existed before. I was excited about it. I started telling my family and my friends. They weren't as excited, but I was. <laughs> I, I, I specifically remember one instance not long after I was saved, and my sister is older than I, and she was married already at this point and was still in the Chicago area where I'm from, and I'm now in Arkansas, and my father had recently passed away, and my mother was alone, and I'm in college not far from there. And Okay, so my life is getting all cleaned up. And so my sister, we're talking on the phone, and she makes this comment. She says, Jeff, man, we're, we're so glad that you're doing better. I mean, we're glad that you're not in trouble anymore, and you're not doing drugs anymore, and you're back in school, and you're getting good grades, and you're helping mom. And man, we're so glad that things are turning for you. But why do you got to keep talking about Jesus all the time? Literally ask me that question. And exactly what I said was, well, listen, I just got to give credit where credit's due. Why would I say that? I say it because it's true. You know me. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it by myself. He did it. He did it. And that's what he does. He, he, he shows himself strong in your life. He proves his presence in your life. That's his power demonstrated in you. Now you know. Now you know the power of the resurrection because now you know he has brought new life to you. Yes, you made the decision earlier, but he proves it. By doing these powerful things. It is amazing. And then the next point in your outline is that he gives you a powerful purpose. A powerful purpose. Back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19 where it says, Exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the power of his resurrection is secondly demonstrated toward us in a very real way in our daily Christian lives. Obviously, you know, sometimes we get, you know, very earthly, carnal 
ideas. When we think about power, so I, you know, I got a few graphics for you. Throw those up there. We got some pictures? All right, sometimes we think of power this way. That's one way. This is church, so get the naked guy off there. We'll do another one. <laughs> sometimes we think of power that way. You can amen if you want. It's okay. It's a cool car. Sometimes we think of power that way. <laughs> Just don't feel like I to say it. Some people, is this, is this working? Okay. Some people have a powerful singing voice. We're just moving right through that other one. I didn't do nothing. Finances, fi- that's a powerful position that people are in. I think that's it, right? That's all we got? Okay. Look, here's, here's, the, here's the reason I'm trying to point this out. All kidding aside, I have no idea why that happened. <laughs> Even as Christian people, we look at those different categories of things that we consider powerful, and, and we get caught up in that, don't we? We still think that that stuff's powerful. Okay, well, in a physical realm, I mean, okay. But we live a spiritual realm now. Our life is supposed to be different. Okay, so back to your notes. If you study the word power in the scriptures, here's what you find. The overwhelming majority of usages all point to one main subject, and that's witnessing, sharing your faith, evangelism, telling people about Jesus. You study the word power, and and it's used in a lot of places in a lot of ways, okay? There's a lot of different references, and and granted, there's a lot of references that deal specifically with the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. But if you exclude the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... The, the overwhelming number of references have to do with witnessing and sharing your faith. So I have just some, some verses on your study sheet, and you can look those up on your own, but very quickly we'll go through them. The Son of Man has power to forgive sins, Matthew 9, 6. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. the Scriptures are the power of God, Matthew 28, 18, and 19. That's the Great Commission, right? All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when? After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And what's going to happen? And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Acts chapter 6 and verse number 8. Stephen, one of the first deacons chosen in the church in Jerusalem, was called a man full of faith and power. And in the very next chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 7, is Stephen witnessing To the Jewish leaders who ultimately so rejected the message, they killed Stephen. He immediately, this power in his life, led him to be a powerful witness of the Messiah. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Romans 15.19, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, the preaching of the cross is equated with the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about his speech and his preaching. And he says, look, it wasn't very, it wasn't very special. But he says, here's the thing. It was in the power of God. And why is that? 
so that when you put your faith in Christ, your faith in Christ will not be in the strength of my oratory skills, but it will be in the power of Christ. It in the power of, your faith stands in the power of God because the message is in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 20 talks about the kingdom of God. That's our spiritual life in Christ. It's not in word, it's in power. So why is that? Why is the overwhelming usage of the word power have to do with witnessing? I mean, we just talked about all the physical miracles that Jesus did. Well, let's talk about that. The next thing in your notes, all the physical miracles of healing are a picture of the spiritual healing that occurs at salvation. Okay, well, listen, don't get me wrong. The physical miracles that Jesus performed literally, physically happened. Deaf people literally got to where they could hear. Blind people literally could begin to see. Lame people that never walked rose up and walked. Things happened literally, physically, just historically accurate. But the miracles that Jesus did in physical healing are not in of themselves the totality of the message. Because what they do for us is they picture for us something far greater, something that lasts even longer. Because see, even the person who now can hear, who now can walk, who now can see, man, thank God for that miracle, especially for that family, right? Eventually they're still going to die. And eventually they have to die either in faith or out of faith. So the picture that it paints of our spiritual healing, you know, I once was blind, but now I see, right? Amazing grace. I mean, that's spiritually speaking. So in John 14 and verse 12, when Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Notice, and greater works than these shall he do because I go into my Father. I propose to you today that there is only one possible way that that verse can be true. That you can possibly do greater works than the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he said that you will, so, you know. There's only one way you can apply that, and that's spiritually. That's the only possible way. How is it possible that you can do greater, if he did physical miracles to the point of raising the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Good luck. (laughs) Go for it. Try and do better than that. You can't. There is no better than that. Unless those things picture a person who is dead in trespasses and sins and you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, share the gospel and they receive new life to live forever whether or not their physical ailments go away. Is that not greater? Of course that's greater. And that's what he said is going to happen for all of us. It must be applied spiritually. So God's power in you will lead you. God's power in you will lead you to be a verbal witness for him. Somebody go ahead and throw it out. Amen. Come on, y'all. Amen. I mean, I know you don't want to say it because you're thinking, I don't do that. Some people are saying, listen, man, I get it. If you have not been a faithful verbal witness, I mean, this is kind of hitting you square. And you're thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah, so say you. <laughs> well, no, 
so says the Scriptures. That's how his power is demonstrated. And you say, well, I don't know, man. It's hard for me. Okay, well, I've got some things for you to consider. Firstly, are you afraid to talk to others? Some people are. Okay, no problem. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but what? Power, love, sound mind. Be not thou therefore, because God hasn't given you fear, but God has given you power. Therefore, be not thou ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Are you fearful? Okay, no problem. Quit relying on yourself and let the power of the resurrection work through you to overcome that and be a verbal witness. Next, are you weak? Great, no problem. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. By the way, we didn't plan that song this morning. It was awesome, sang that song. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Are you weak? You're qualified. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's not my strength. It's his strength. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Well, look, you have to be crazy to take pleasure in infirmities unless you're a Christian and you have a spiritual perspective on life. In reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then am I strong. So he brings his strength. He he brings it when you surrender yours, he steps up with his. So once God has proven his presence to you personally, he then empowers you to proclaim his power to everybody who will listen. He gives you power to complete his purpose through you. And in your notes, he's given each of us a specific ministry and the power to carry it out. And that ministry is defined in 2 Corinthians 5.18. It is called the ministry of reconciliation. Notice the verse. If you are in Christ and you are a new creature, that's verse 17 just before this, and it goes on and it says, and all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us Who are we? Who's the us referring to? Well, everybody who's a new creature in Christ. Are you a new creature in Christ? Well, then he's given you the ministry of reconciliation. That's your ministry. That's your God-given ministry. It's supernatural. It's awesome. It's amazing. Man, don't miss out. It's a great ride. Okay, the last thing I want us to see concerning the power of his resurrection are just some practical pointers. And we're going to go back And we're going to pull out some practical things that will just help you get through this, starting in verse 21, where it says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And so he kind of turns a corner and he's talking about, he begins to introduce the idea of this opposing force. Okay? And so comparing Scripture with Scripture, we're going to determine very easily what that is. You go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12, and it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
So where, what is our fight all about? Well, it's against principalities, against powers. Those are the words. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. There it is. In high places. These are demonic forces that are at work in this world. You see principalities. You see powers. They're rulers of darkness. They're spiritually wicked. And Christ is far above all those things. That's the devil, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 4 is also referred to as the God of this world, small g. The God of this world. He's blinded the minds of them which believe not. He doesn't want them to get saved. So as the God of this world, and that is what he is, by the way, that is who he is at this point in history anyway, he has set this world, you got to get this, he has set this world on a course. It's sometimes referred to as the broad way that leads to destruction. And he has set this world on a course, and before you bowed your knee and surrendered your heart and life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, every single one of us was on that course. You walked according to that course. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2. We saw verse number 1 earlier, right? You hath he quickened, which were dead in trespasses and sins. You used to be dead, now you're made alive. Wherein in time past, back when you were dead in trespasses and sins, back before you were saved, wherein in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. It's the course that the God of the world has set for the world. That's why the world is one of your enemies. The flesh is one of your enemies, both controlled by the devil, the ultimate enemy of God and his children. So everybody who's saved used to walk according to the course of this world. Notice, according to the prince of the power of the air like a principality, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, like spiritual wickedness. So in your notes, I put it this way. Before you were saved, the devil had dominion over your life. I don't care how nice of a person you were. Spiritually speaking, that's biblically accurate. Before you were saved, the devil had dominion over your life But now with God's power in your life, you become dangerous to the enemy. You become dangerous. You are a formidable foe, and the devil knows it. He knows it. And the reason is because God who is in you now is much more powerful. That's 1 John 4, 4, right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's a great promise, and we should claim that promise, and we should quote that, and we should memorize it, and we should refer to it. But, oh, my friends, be not deceived. The devil is powerful. I mean, don't be so foolish as to think that just because you name the name of Christ, that, like, you can just, you know, tell the devil where to get off. A lot of people are very spiritually arrogant. The archangel Michael didn't even do that, right? And so the devil has a lot of experience and he is 
a supernatural being. In Hebrews 2.12, it says that he has the power of death. We saw in Ephesians 2 where he's the prince, not just of the air, but he's the prince of the power of the air. In Colossians 1.13, talking about our salvation, that we've been translated from the power of darkness. Yes, into the kingdom of his dear son, but there is a power of the darkness. And it's powerful. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, referring to a time coming future and maybe beginning to take place even now, I don't know, but as we enter into this time called the tribulation and referring to this character called the Antichrist, it says that he will appear with power and signs and lying wonders. So not everybody who performs miracles is necessarily of the Lord because the devil will have an ability to do that as well. He has enough power to do those sort of things. You have to be able to discern. Mark chapter 3, 27, it's a story where it says, look, if you're going to take the strong man's house, you have to first bind the strong man. The idea is the devil. You, he's a strong, he's referred to as a strong man. And until he is bound, ultimately in the millennium, bound in the pit for a thousand years, then you can't take his house, which is this world. Okay, so the power of the devil today is in his subtlety. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the very first time the devil is ever introduced, he's introduced as a serpent, and it says the serpent was more subtle than every beast of the field. And so the first adjective that God ever uses to describe the devil, the first time he's introduced in all of Scripture, is that he's subtle. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. That's why you need to be careful not to be deceived. In your notes, I wrote this. The devil wants to make you disobedient to God. Of course. How? By using your liberty as an occasion for sin. That's a real challenge today, friends. It's a real challenge for modern-day Christians to not want to do what it seems like everybody else wants to do, and that's fight for their rights and to live your little private life behind your little pocket screen and tell everybody else to get out of your space and leave you alone and it's none of your business and I have liberty and I can do what I want. Who are you to try and tell me? And, and we, get, we develop all of this kind of a protection bubble around us to basically keep accountability at an arm's length. And all we're doing is setting ourselves up to be able to excuse our own sin. I'm teaching a group of people who are in a new members class at 9 o'clock and we talked this morning about our values as a church and one of the values we have as a church is personal holiness. And it should be a value that you have in your life. And Man, you know how easy it is today to just say, well, society this and that and everybody this and it seems to be okay and compared to them, well, you know, it's better. And, and before you know it, you're excusing sinful behavior under the banner of liberty. Well, Christ has made me free. I can do what I want. Okay. Well, let's see what the Bible really says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 14. He starts off by reminding us, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners 
shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, and such were some of you, but, praise God, you're washed. But, praise God, you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And the church said, Hallelujah. Who cares who you were? Thank God for who you are. So he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Look, all things are lawful unto me. I have freedom. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but here it is. I will not be brought under the power of any of it. Because there is a power of darkness that understands that you, friend, Christian, are now a formidable enemy and potentially very dangerous to the kingdoms of this world of lost people. And the devil knows it. And if he can get you to compromise, and if he can get you to just say, ah, you know, whatever, it's cool, and in the name of cool or in the name of whatever, you, you justify away your ability to live like the devil. You are being brought under another power. And it's not the power of the resurrection. You've surrendered that. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. So the power, of the, resur- the power that raised Christ will for sure raise us as well because we are Christ's. So that power is available now. Why would you cash that in? for the cheap trinket of temporal satisfaction. But that's what the devil's trying to do. He had dominion over you, and he lost it, and he's ticked. And I say, hallelujah. Get over it. This is in your notes. That's because you know how the devil works? He works in the latitude between your life and the Word of God. Where does that come from? It comes from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. Friends, do not allow yourself to be sucked in to the current of this world that wants you to give space for the devil to work in your life. The Bible defines what God wants. And if your life is on a straight line with the Bible, there is no room for the devil to work in your life. But however much you choose to deviate away from the truth of the Bible determines the space, the place that you give to the devil. Because that place, if your life is just a little bit off, well then you've given the devil just a little bit. If your life is way off, man, you've given the devil just a huge old field to work in. 
Because the devil operates in the latitude between your life and the word of God. That's where he operates. So don't give him any room. Live a biblical life. That's all you have to do. Let me give you some practical applications and we'll be done for today. The first thing is courage. You need to resist the devil. That's what the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse number 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You don't have to go after him. You don't need to fight him. You just need to resist him. That's what it says in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 where it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. There's power, right? In the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's going to do what he's going to do. You're not going to stop him from doing what he's going to try and do in your life. What are you supposed to do? Stand. Resist. Not attack. Not retreat. Just stand. Stand in the truth that is the word of God. You need to resist the devil. It takes courage to do that. Next, faith. You need to rest in God's promises. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Famous, fantastic. You need to know this verse. There's no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But somebody's faithful. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And listen, I understand there are times in life when we go through things that we consider to be unbearable. There are times of extreme difficulty that come in seasons of our life. We hate those seasons. And we think, Lord, this is more than I can bear. I get it that we say that. I have said that sentence. The truth of the matter is that that's inaccurate. Because if it is happening in your life, that means that God has already determined that you can bear it. You can stand. You can resist. Because God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond the level that you can bear. You say, Jeff, you have no idea the level at which I am suffering. And you're probably right. Can I encourage you with this? Because I've had those times in my life where I could say, you have no idea the levels at which I'm suffering. God reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, trusting his promise. You know what, Jeff? You can take more than you think you can take. You're stronger than you think you are. I know that you're stronger than you think you are. So just trust me and ride this out with me, and I'll help you. That's the word some of you need today. You might think you're in over your head, but you're never in. Uh, Listen, Christian, you can't be in over your head. Christ is your head. You can't drown in your troubles. His head is always above the waters, right? Y'all need to amen more. This is good preaching. Seriously. Lastly, teamwork. You need to rely on God's people. Man, we need each other, right? So back in Ephesians, right, he goes into verses 22 and 23, he talks about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And in Galatians 6, first few verses, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, 
Ye ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. Listen, you can't handle it alone. You need the Lord. Well, the Lord operates through his body, which is the church. You need the church. So the practical pointers, look, these things will help you. You need to resist the devil. You need to rest in God's promises, and you need to rely on God's people. If you are not plugged in to God's people through this church in small groups and connected where you can pray and be accountable and encourage and all those things, you are hurting yourself. By the way, you're hurting all of us because we need you as much as you need us, and boy, we got to do this together. It's just that important. If we went back to Philippians 3 and remind ourselves of the story leading up to verse 10, we are reminded that Paul said, look, all of these achievements in my life are like dung, he said, in comparison to the greatness, the excellency of of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that I may know him. So maybe you've been sitting here all this morning and the Lord's trying to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, are you sure? You know, you've never really experienced that power in your life. You've never really had this overwhelming testimony and God's never really seemed to do much of anything. You just kind of are a nice guy that shows up at church and maybe you're just not sure you're saved. You know that if that's going on in your heart and your life, you can just handle that right now. You can just take care of it and ask him to save you. I mean, we'll pray in a minute and you can just do that. But a lot of people would say they've already done that. And so we're talking about the power of his resurrection, which is demonstrated to everybody who truly knows him. He proves his presence. We talked about that. He gives you a purpose and a ministry. And then kind of how to go about doing it so that you can be effective in the fact that you're dangerous to the enemy, which I like. It ticks him off. I like that. Listen, for 21 years of my life, What did the devil ever do for me? Well, all the wrong things. Well, I got no allegiance to him. I I want to, I am firmly planted on the other team now. (laughs) And I'm going to do whatever I can to tick him off. I don't care. He didn't give me new life. He didn't heal me from all my problems. Jesus did all that. Listen, you have new life where you didn't have life at all, you were spiritually dead. And if you're not sure about that, then you need to get saved today. But if you're sure about that, and you haven't been remotely interested in being a verbal witness to other people, well, you're not allowing God's power to work in your life. And he wants you to do that. There's just something about going out and talking to people on purpose that puts you out of your comfort zone. Of course, it puts me out of my comfort zone. But... It lets God's power work through you. Is that not the goal? That's awesome. Your life matters now. Oh, and by the way, he might just choose to use you and see somebody else changed right before your very eyes, which after your own salvation is just the coolest thing that could ever happen. When somebody gets saved when you witness to them, oh man, that's just the greatest thing in the world. So let's do more of that. What do you say? Let's pray together.